always sings raggedy music to the cattle as he swings back and forward in the saddle on a horse, a pretty good horse, syncopated, gated, and there's such a funny meter to the roar of his repeater. How they run when they hear that fellow's gun because the western... Oh, here we go, gang! Here we go, crowd! All right, hold it there, hold it, gang. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. That's enough crowd. Hold it there. Do you have ragtime cowboy up in there? No, no, just hold hold it to one side. Ragtime Cowboy. It's on the first disc on this side, the first one there. Ragtime Cowboy. Boy, it's Monday. I feel like I'm ready to gnaw a bone. You know, no no wonder we, we dig pictures of Henry VIII. I think underneath all of us there lies that sleeping, dormant carnivore. Uh... Hey, ping more meat! <laughs> Army, more wine, women, <laughs> song. My <laughs> God, my God, sir. <laughs> I suggest uh, for those of you who have a, a carnivore lurking deep under the surface there and also have a touch of Anglo feel, I would uh, respectfully suggest that you see Tom Jones. <laughs> oh, boy, do I remember a terrible, rotten semester in school going through Tom Jones. All set in there, Dick? That old, old little Tom... All right, here we go. One... Hey, what are you... That's not ragtime, cowboy. That's Canadian capers. Hey, cut it out. Hold it, hold it. Oh, oh hold it. That's the most weirdly uh, labeled record in there. You just have to... It's ragtime, cowboy. Oh, you hold it there for a while. You, you find it now. I'll struggle. You know, speaking of the struggle, I'll tell you, it's Monday night. And uh, we're all here, at least for this moment. All of us are here together. We're all 20th century men. Uh, some of us are more 20th century than others, that's true. Uh, <laughs> that's, you know, that's something that very, very, very few people would talk about, you know. Where we always assume, you know, that since everybody's alive in 1964, that they're all observing 1964. You guys walking around scratching. I, I would like to know the eyes through which guys see things. I'll bet a lot of guys... Really, I'd love to look through other guys' eyes as well as have other guys look through mine, too. I, I uh, You know, it, it, to, 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 I don't know how to even phrase this. But if you're walking down the street and, you, and here's this guy ahead of you and you look through his eyes and all of a sudden, as you see the world, you look... Just say you look up Sixth Avenue. You're walking up Sixth Avenue, and and uh, there's a guy ahead of you. He's wearing a brown suit, see, and he's got one of these sort of uh, shapeless gray hats on, you know, that that men wear, and his coat sort of hangs down on the back, and you can see it's rump sprung, the pants, and the, the knees are bagging a little bit, and he's sort of shuffling along there, just for one thirty-second shot. Think how fantastic it would be to suddenly be behind his eyes and to see 6th Avenue through his eyes. All of a sudden, for just for one brief instant, you're looking at 1923. 
<laughs> to make it. He sees all this stuff going past him, you know, the cars and the guys yelling and hollering, and the kids and the and all the shops and stuff. And and he sees none of that. He sees nothing that has happened since 1923. And what he does see once in a while, it sneaks in on his vision. Of course, he can't help it. And he just sort of looks the other way or says, oh, "Damn nuts." <laughs> It just keeps going on, you know. Uh, and then on the other hand, I'm, I'm curious if, if, if it could possibly be that there is quite the opposite. You're, you're walking along behind this tall, thin, razor-like guy. He's wearing a dark suit, and he's carrying an attache case. And he's got this, this sharp Adams hat, you know, and he's going along there. And you look through his eye... Suddenly, you're, you're looking at good old friendly 6th Avenue, you know, all the bums walking around in the shops that say, back issue magazines, whoopee department, lust department in the rear, you know. And you're walking along, and there's the juice stands and the whole jazz. And all of a sudden, you're behind his eyes, and you see 6th Avenue for one 30-second shot, and there it is, a great Broad Avenue, thousands of 1984 cars moving in a thin stream. And up uh, on each side, you see these great buildings rising, great packages all looking like the Pan Am building. Each one higher and higher and higher it goes, higher into the air. The Pan Am building gets higher. and Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. They're all growing higher. And for one brief 30-second shot, oh... Oh, you see the brave new world. Thousands of people on moving sidewalks going left and right. It is impossible to tell one sex from the other. They're all in a clean, beautifully fitting stretch uniform of polyethylene cloth. <laughs> oh, cut it, cut it, hold it, Dick. That's enough yelling. Hold it, hold it. Hold it, dang. Hold it, hold it, hold it. It's not, no laughing matter there. Oh, no laughing matter. Uh, I'll tell you this, though. Uh, for all the for all the laughing and yelling and hollering that we do, and for all the the angry writing that's going on and all the marching around and the and uh, the the hoopla, it's uh, it is a fact that this is probably one of the most exciting times to be alive that uh, possibly has occurred within the past two hundred years. Uh, in spite of the fact that there is a great nostalgia for a time past and gone that never really was among large numbers of people, has it ever occurred to you that most of the college kids today are, many of them, not most, I should say many, are suffering under a kind of 19th century mania? Uh, you know, Dick, have you run into many of them? Oh, yeah, a real 19th century thing going with them. And... Uh, you can go into probably 25 places within a mile radius here of, uh, of this area where we're broadcasting from and find places that are decorated, that the entire scheme, the entire feeling of everything as you come into there is what the guys who are in there like to feel is roughly 1885. Uh, the Tiffany lamp is hanging there. And the, the, uh, the <laughs> Oh, yeah, and... and, and these these people yet somehow feel that they're deep in the middle, and they really do feel that they're right in the middle of the 20th century. They they, they feel that they're really they're really with what's happening, <laughs> and, and and yet they uh, uh, many of the chicks uh, wear roughly uh, 1840 type Sears Roebuck dresses. They really do. They're they're going for this in a very big way. They pull their hair back, you know, like the uh, the, the idea of the uh, the 19th century American Western pioneer. 
and sitting over in the corner is this is this 19 year old kid and he's got a Sears Roebuck guitar I'm just a lonesome cowboy I'm a wandering down the trail oh I'm a lonesome cowboy and I don't know where I'll die rink a tink a tink a tink and right outside you hear the traffic of 7th Avenue South is roaring past. Oh, I'm a lonesome cowboy, and I don't know where I'm going. Holy the game. She's got eyes of blue. I never cared for eyes of blue, but she's got eyes of blue. And that's my weakness now. She's got dimple cheeks. I never cared for dimple cheeks, but she's got dimple cheeks. And that's my weakness now. Oh, my, 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 my. Oh, me, my, me. Oh, ricka ticka tick I could be good. She likes to be and cool. I never like to bill and coop, but she, she likes to bill and coop, and that's my weakness now. Oh my, oh my, oh me, rickety-tick-tick. Quack, 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 this this is a this is the thing that they're going to one day write a lot about about our time. Is the kind of running away uh, from our time that a large numbers of people uh, went through and did. Curious, very curious phenomenon. And of course, nineteenth-century politics uh, is very important to a nineteenth-century mind. And uh, it's the truth. And, and uh, one of the reasons, of course, why Barry Goldwater is appealing to a large number of 19th century kids is because he has a 19th century uh, sense of the oversimplification. You know, he deals, he deals with the 19th century world. In those days, of course, uh, of course, probably the last of the true 19th century men was Theodore Roosevelt. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt just, Bully, come bully! Well, go on, teach them writers a lesson. Teach them a lesson. I say that the American flag should fly over. Oh, hey, let's go, Dick. Watch it there, Dad. I say, whoop, whoop. All right, that's it. Boy. Here, Dick, it's the other. There's ragtime. There you go. There you go. He always sings. Raggedy music to the cattle as he swings back and forward in the saddle on a horse. Pretty good horse. Sink to break to break. There we go. Let's try that again, Dick. Hold it. Hold it. I've been working. Hold it, Dick. Dick. Hold it. Hold it. I've been working on Ragtime Cowboy. Now, you get that queued up. That's the one we've been looking for. You get that queued up. I've been working on this since the fall of 1960. And I'm going to get that bridge yet. Ah, boy. You know, while we're on the subject of, uh, of the 19th century mind, uh, uh, it, 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 is, it is a truly fascinating phenomenon to me. And, of course, there is nobody who digs a Tiffany lampshade more than I do. And believe me, there is no one who ha I, I will match my antediluvian mind. I will match my prehistoric conceptions with anybody's. My moss-covered ideas, my ridiculous crevassed, dust-covered, 
biases? I'll match them with anybody. Let's go. All together. Oh, it's exciting, isn't it? All together now. He always sings. Rack the music with the cattle as he swings. Back and forward in the saddle on a horse, pretty good horse. Syncopated, gated, and there's such a funny meter to the roar of his repeater. How they run. Oh, when they hear that fellow's gun, because the Western folks all know he's a highfalutin' rootin' tootin' son of a gun from Arizona. Ragtime cowboy. Talk about your cowboys. Ragtime cowboy, Joe. Oh. All right, all right, all right. There, we did it. Oh, we did it. Well, uh, I, I, uh, I, 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 I don't know, you know. I assume that, uh, of course, uh, I assume that, uh, <laughs> that the people who really do have a, a 19th century attitude towards the world really honestly believe that it is possible that, uh, history can not only be stopped, but like, 55, 60, 70 years can just be erased. And it's just like you take a cloth and erase it all, just take it down, and everything's going to be all right. Well, uh, I, I think, uh, I think one, of the, one of the things that sets man apart from all the other creatures on the face of the globe is his ability to, although, again, we don't really know whether they do or not, that is, the other creatures, so it's hard to know. But uh, from all available evidence, no other creature has ever been able to build what we call uh, dream castles. You know what I mean by the dream castle? The, the, the giant delusion. Now, I'm not just talking about one guy sitting around figuring that tomorrow morning he's going to become vice president of IBM. Uh, that's bad enough right there, you know, that dream castle. What would even be worse is if he made it. But... Uh, uh, the, 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 I'm talking about the National Dream Castle. Now, hardly anyone ever talks about the national illusions that somehow take hold of a country and uh, do. Now, they just do. They just take the country and gallop off into the distance, into the dust with it. Now, uh, we like to believe, however, that no such thing exists because this is a pretty disquieting thing you know, to realize that, that a country, like a person... Speaking of delusions, this is W-O-R-A-M of FM, New York, here. <laughs> uh, you know, we like to think that, uh, that countries, I guess that's the most conventional way of thinking about a country. When you think of a country, I, um, how do you think of it? Do you think of it as a lot of people uh, being led by a leader or a government? Or do you think uh, of it as just a sort of a great blob out there in which the leaders and the government are merely an extension of the people. In short, they're not separate at all. Of course, one of the great cop-outs of our time, or of any other time, is that everything that happens in the world is because of the rotten leaders. Every place you go, and from all time immemorial, this is what poor slobs have said. Well, they're good people, actually. They're basically good people. It's the rotten leaders they've got that have let them down the trail, the pathway to hell. My God, they're good people. Well, <laughs> this has been said countless times. Dick, how many times have you heard it? Well, uh, there's much evidence to prove that the leaders are no different from the people. Uh, that, that the reason that they are the leaders is because the people said, get up there and yell it for us, for us. Now, there's always, in any government, no matter who it is, there's always about 19,000 guys who are against that government. 
but usually for reasons that we never discuss. One of the big reasons is that, the, is that they're not in. Now this is uh, they're not really against the government. This is this is how a lot of a lot of things uh, get confused. Like we'll we'll see we'll cheer a guy coming in. You know we'll cheer a new dictator or we'll cheer a revolution. We'll say Ah, Viva the Castro! We're yelling and hollering because he's hollering. He's he's going in with big banners that say liberty, equality, beauty, truth. Get rid of the rotten guys. And then after the rotten guys are through, it'll all be paradise forever. And I'll go back and I'll study uh, butterfly painting, and I have no political aspirations. Just get rid of them rotten guys. Liberty! Viva la liberty! Viva la truth! It's a viva la Castro! Well, the next thing you know, we're cheering, and the guy's in, and we find out that the only reason he was mad at the other guy that was in was because he wasn't. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's the truth. And this happens time and time again. This has happened endless times over in history. Now, I, it even happens in, uh, of course, it happens even more so in a great industrial civilization where it is really difficult to have two distinct types of philosophy. People seem to think, you know, that this shows the Republicans are hardly, t you can hardly tell them from the Democrats. Uh, you know, they, they say this, well, this is, this is the nature of a great automated society, of a tremendous organization that finally now is rolling on its own weight, literally. Uh, when you have a club, let's put it on this basis, when you have a club that has only five guys in it, one guy, uh, one guy wants the club to meet on Wednesdays, and he wants them to eat onion sandwiches and sing German leader songs. All right, so there is another guy that wants the club to meet on Sunday mornings. He wants them to eat salami sandwiches on white bread, and furthermore, he wants them to march forever to the tune of Semper Fidelis. Well, now there you've got two complete guys, you know, two complete views of the club. And it seems, and it is, of course, in that case, it is simple to have two distinct attitudes. Well, then what are you going to do, you see, one day when now the club has 75 million guys in it? And not only are there 75 million guys, they've got regional offices, they've got branch offices, they've got a giant treasury department, they've got a computing department, they've got a department that sends out bills to the members, they've got a department that buries the members, they've got a department that carries them around in buses, they've got a department that caters to the members, that serves over 27 million meals every 34 hours. Well, in the end... <laughs> It seems like no matter who you are, because he has to deal with this enormous machine now, that his policies are just like the other guys, only just a little bit different. Now, there's only one kind of policy that could possibly be different when you have a giant machine, and that is, blow it all up! <laughs> Which, of course, will never be, because the machine is now too big and is rolling down the highway of its own weight. And... Uh, very few men can have any actual uh, real uh, impact on the direction or the way that machine is rolling. And so, yet we still have these 19th century ideas that it's a little club. We do, you know, because there will always be seven or eight guys, or maybe a thousand, or maybe even a million guys in that great big club who, because of one reason or another, remember when there were only five guys. And they keep saying, do you remember the old days, Charlie, 
when they had real guys, real guys with real ideas in this outfit. Why, I can remember one time, and, and of course, they refused to accept the fact that no longer is the club just five guys, and no longer is it easy to steer it in any any direction. It's just like the difference between driving a kiddie car, which you can ride up and down uh, the, the living room floor, and you can drive it into the bathroom. You can try that with a bus sometime. Seriously, try that with a Mack truck. Well, it just uh, the sheer size of the club now is such. That, and so a lot of people, because of the fact that now we're a little worried about this giant machine that's rolling like an enormous juggernaut. See, the, the, there was a time when people used to feel that they were part of the club when the club is small. I'm sure that you've been in clubs or some kind of organizations before. You used to feel that you were part of it. And you get up and argue with it. Well, then as the club got bigger and bigger and bigger, you began to feel more and more cheated. Until one day, you didn't even go to meetings anymore. Uh, the club had 18 million members, and there were all kinds of new guys in it, <laughs> all kinds of newfangled ideas, wise guys were coming into it, and so you finally decided to stay home, and you figured that that's, by staying home, you had made a real statement about the club, forget it. The club just went right on, and you just stayed home, so uh, no, the only one who lost was you. Now, this is what many millions of Americans are doing about America. They're just staying home. See, they, they figure, well, it's, it's, it's completely out of hand. I'm not, I'm not interested at all. It's just a complete... Well, uh, then they like to believe that it's the rotten leaders that are doing it. It's the leaders. If we get rid of this leader, uh, it's going to be okay. If we get rid of the next leader... Well, have you noticed that people increasingly have said that for, 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 the, for, for all of the... Well, actually, all of the presidents I can remember in my lifetime. But it's getting more, you see. It used to take a little longer for people to decide if we can only get this rascal out, uh, it's going to be better. And now today, practically the minute that the president gets in, like 20 minutes afterwards, the first cartoons begin to appear on how rotten and insidious this new president is. <laughs> And, and the 19th century mind continues to gallop forward. Now, I'm sure that, that probably the most 19th century mind in the body of mankind, when I say the 19th century mind, I, if, if it's in the 17th century, well, you'd have to say the 16th century mind. The most nostalgic mind in any society is always the writer. The writer, the thinker. Uh, it really is because because the, uh, and I'm, I'm not I'm not being anti-intellectual here. I'm I'm uh, I'm trying <laughs> I'm trying I'm trying to say something about the writer's mind. Now <clears throat> he and and uh, the guys that are on the radio too. I'm, I'm including them all. You see, the most 19th century mind is the man who is a writer. Now one of the reasons why, and I don't immediately say why. Well, one of the reasons why is because somewhere along the line. Uh, wherever it was, he, it's hard to tell, he somehow abdicated. He, he dropped out of the club, you see. And, and he then began to spend all of his time writing about the club. He began to spend all of his time writing angry letters to the club president. <laughs> he spent all his time writing angry, irritated articles for the club periodical, which every third or fourth time they would send back rejected. 
And, and so he became more and more. The, the, the writer has been traditionally, and artist in general, has been traditionally isolated from society. Now, uh, in, in earlier times, uh, very, much earlier, three, four hundred years ago, uh, it was almost impossible for a man to be isolated from his society. He was far too dependent on it. Uh, he could not, uh, he, he, really, he, could, uh, he could, had to carry water. He had to go down the street and get water. So he had to meet a lot of people. Uh, he had to go, he had to go uh, seven or eight miles to get a ham hock. And he, yeah, oh yes, uh, things were very... So, but with the coming, with the great growth of automation and with the great growth of uh, conveniences, what we call civilization, it has become possible today for a man to be far more isolated than, than Thoreau ever was. Believe me. Uh, Walden Pond was like a, a big roller rink compared to the isolation that many guys can achieve today. First of all, uh, everything that you eat... Let's just take little basic things. Everything that you eat can be brought in. And not only brought in, a guy can lay in enough to eat in this day and age for six months if he's got a freezer. I know one writer who has not talked to people in over a year. Seriously. He lives up in Woodstock. And every three or four months, the local grocery people come down to his cabin and they stock up his freezer. He gives them a big check and that's it. He's got his food now for the next six, three, four, five months. He doesn't even see anybody. He has his telephone removed. No phone. No, it's all out. You see, his phone's removed. And he's been up there now, oddly enough, for like four years, writing about the 20th century. <laughs> now, a lot of guys, now this is another problem, too, with the writer and with the artist in general. He seeks his own kind. Uh, you will find more writers, you'll find, for example, if you go down, I've, well, this has happened to me dozens of times, you go to a party in the village, and almost the, entire pe the, almost the entire group of people there are people who are writers, artists, one thing or another. And, uh, of course, they, they spend their time talking about society, excoriating society, one thing or another. But they're doing it with other writers, and they're doing it with other artists. It would be very difficult to find, say, Norman Mailer in a bowling alley in Jersey, and yet I'm sure he thinks he knows all about it. Sure. Uh, it would be very, very difficult to find, say, uh, oh, uh, oh, just name, just take one from, from offhand. You see, on the other hand, you see, uh, a man uh, can live in the Jersey bowling alley and be isolated because that is another party going on. In short, the world today is so, so far more complex that a man in any place he lives, if he's, if he's living in a Jersey community and he's at the bowling alley every night, he's probably just as isolated from society as Norman Mailer is in a village party down on, on 7th Avenue South, you know? Uh, it's just difficult because society has so many facets today that it, it's, uh, you're always isolated. Now, what a guy does, because he senses his isolation, he rails at society and says it's rotten society's fault that he's isolated. And somehow they should do something about it. If they had the beautiful morals and the beautiful, clear way of viewing things that he has, it wouldn't be that way, is the, is the, general, is the general consensus of opinion. And, and so in the end, uh, we, have what we, have, we have what they call a shaman. Yeah, that's a good, good word. Uh, this is a word 
that uh, that is in a sense a magic talisman. It means uh, it means the one in the tribe upon whom everything can be blamed. Roughly, uh, of course, there are other meanings to it. There are other meanings too that that this shema, this this creature in the in the tribe, is also the one upon whom from whom all benefits flow. Uh, in the uh, in the more primitive tribes. Uh, this can be both things. For example, a chief uh, is usually, or a medicine man can be that. Uh, we have our president. And so if we don't like the 20th century, blame it on the president. Uh, <laughs> and it, and, and if, the, if he was a good president, he would take over. He would, he would do something about it. Well, it's pretty hard, you know. It, it, it literally is. Uh, many kings have tried this in the past. Uh, czars tried it in the past. There have been many men in the past who have tried to say, let's cut out all this jazz. This 12th century is for the birds. I'm going back to the 9th century, and the whole country's going with me. Hitler tried that, by the way. That was, that was Hitler's gambit. And, and one of the things that we rarely want to talk about in connection with this kind of thing and this sort of thinking is the national pipe dream. Now... Who knows quite where it starts, nor where it ends. This is very, very, a very, very complex subject. But the national pipe dream does not stem from one man getting up on a stump and outlining a plan. I'm sorry. I do not believe this, and I've never believed it, and many historians don't believe it. That what that man is, really, who gets up on the stump eventually, Dick, and outlines the plan. He is merely putting into final words, into final statement, what was in the air and in the people's minds all the time for at least a certain measurable period of time. So Hitler did not create Nazism. Nazism finally was espoused through Hitler, but it was in the air there for a long time before one guy got up and said, let's do it. You know, have you ever been to a party when, when everybody wants to do something and nobody says it? And then finally one guy says, All right, okay, all of us want to get drunk and fall down the steps, right? Everybody sits there sheepishly, sort of nods. Okay, I'm going to start. Arr, let's go. Well, within 20 minutes, everybody's falling down the steps. Now, the question is, did he lead? It's a good question. Well, uh, one, of the, one of the real difficulties, one of the genuine difficulties about a pipe dream is that the man who is really in one does not know he is. Now, don't confuse that with a daydream. A person sitting around in the, in the middle of the afternoon uh, thinking about taking the trip to Bermuda or something, that's a daydream. You know, he, he knows, he knows fully, he knows full well that uh, he's not going to go to Bermuda He's going to go to work tomorrow morning. That's the end of it. He's just kicking off a little dust. That's all. But there is another kind of dream. And that's the dream where the man really and honestly, legitimately, or whatever it is, he feels that what he believes is really true. And not only does he believe it, he is willing to kill for it. To prove that it is so. Now... Oftentimes, you've seen you've seen uh, you've seen cases of of, uh, of a neurotic person, who uh, really a genuine neurotic, who feels, for example, that everybody in the world is out to attack them. 
that they're all all sneaking around writing letters about him. This you know, this is a this is a true this is a, a neurotic bordering on paranoid uh, tendencies. You, you've you've uh, you've seen this person. Well, uh, this is a very catching thing, you know. Oh yeah. Uh, this is a well-known uh, phenomenon to psychologists, is the, is the ability of one neurotic to pull other people who are more normal, who are not neurotic in the beginning, pull him into his dream. And pretty soon you've got two guys who are plotting. I see they're all out there. We've got to get a special post office box so nobody knows where we are. And uh, we've got to cut the phone off. Oh, boy, look at that guy walking down the street. See, look, look at the way he's got his hat. See, he's pulled his hat down. He's looking. And the next thing you know, they've got a third guy and a fourth guy. Until finally, there are 27,000 guys figuring that the world is out after them. And each one of these guys commiserates with the other and tells the other his delusions are not delusions but are actual realities. Well, until one day, uh, there is a sizable body of them. And then they become a party. And they feel that the time is now ripe to do something about it. Now, what makes this come about? That's very complex. What makes, it, what makes a, a growth of one of these things happen at any given time? Nobody quite knows. There have been a lot of theories about it. And only recently have they begun to deal with the thing called the, the, the mass neurosis, the mass nuttiness, the mass daydream. And, and it's very, very, oh, it's a very, it's a very unpopular subject in America. You know, you can't talk much about this because everybody likes to believe that he is a solid individual and is a true individual and is not affected by the crowd around him. This is one of the great dreams in America. Well, Pavlov said differently. And many psychologists will say differently that the, that you get 27,000 people in one crowd in Times Square, they're very different from each one of those people at home by himself. No matter how hard he fights against it. Very different. They'll do things, too, that the, the single man would not, the one man, the unit, would not do. And it's pretty hard for them after it's all over, after the debauch is all over. It's pretty hard for them to explain why they did it. Because now they're single again. They're one man. When he's in the crowd, you don't have to explain it. He knows why he's doing it. Later on, the party's hard to explain. It's just, just like, if you, have you ever talked to a German? I mean, in Germany? In the end, they can't explain it. They really can't. <laughs> and, and, and we like to think, that's a cop-out. That's a cop-out, because he can't go, no, sir, I'm sorry. Uh, that, that it is hard for a man by himself to explain what he did when he was under the influence of a giant mass neurosis. And once it's over, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like, uh, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to get a, I, I one time talked to a guy who was a marathon dancer, Dick. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the marathon dance craze was a wild, insane thing that went through America for a long time there. And you know, the, he could not, he, he laughs like, like a fiend about it. You know, he laughs about it, he thinks he was a nut. But he, at the time, it seemed very reasonable to dance for 14,000 consecutive hours until finally his liver fell through his shoes. And he always, that was the end of him, you know. Somehow it seemed the thing to do at the time. Well, he was under the influence of a giant mass movement, uh, a giant mass thing. He didn't, didn't know what to, what to do with it. And, then, and if, as you see, that, and when you're under a mass neurosis, uh, or a fad, or whatever you might call it, the guy who's doing the dancing doesn't seem nutty to the people who are cheering. 
because they're under it too. The people who are cheering are just as nutty as the guy who's dancing. They're just another side of the coin. And so the, uh, you take the Nazis. The Nazis themselves were, in effect, the dancers. I mean, the guys with the uniforms and all that. Went around, hollered, and high, and all this. They were the dancers. The rest of the people in Germany were the audience. They were applauding. Well, who was the nuttiest? Who knows, you know? <laughs> Who's the nuttier? The guy that writes the bad show or the people who cheer him? It's a very difficult question. We like to always blame the writer. We like to always blame the guy in the uniform. Uh, well, it's pretty hard. Now, now uh, here in America, I don't know. There's the, there's <laughs> there, there's some pretty interesting things going on. And one of the things we have uh, that has developed, and it's been really steamrolling, because we're a very romantic nation. We really are. We're very romantic. Uh, you can see romanticism on all sides in America. The happy ending movies. Uh, Doris Day is forever young. Uh, the, the happy thing uh, is, is uh, the, the word the word togetherness is a true American word. Uh, the word it's a it's a it's a happy a fun thing. Uh, this is an American. They, they never occur to uh, to a uh, to a Balkan to use the phrase a fun it is a fun thing, Ivan. <laughs> never. It's just uh, it's our language. We're very romantic people because. In a sense, one of the great things that I think America believes in more than anything else, and that's childhood. And it's a very romantic concept. We all believe that we're children, and, and the more we can stay like children, the more we love it. So finally, uh, you'll find people today uh, spending millions of dollars to remain 22 if they can. Uh, we worship at the at the feet of children here in this country. It's a and and, and that's a romantic concept. It's a, it's a, and so we begin to adopt to show that we're one of the children childish attitudes towards things. And so today, large numbers of guys in their thirties are living on uh, good humor bars. Literally, you think that's I'm telling you the truth, Dick. And they're they're drinking yoo-hoo. And uh, they, they, yeah, they, they're living like, like uh, the way they think a child should live. And they're digging it. Now, uh, what, what does this result in, of course? One of the, one of the things that has, has come about in America is a tremendous belief, like children, a tremendous thing that children do is to dream of the olden days. This is the thing that kids do all the time. Almost all fairy tales begin once upon a time in the olden days. Children like to dream of the olden days. Well, you really have some dangerous things going on when you have a nation of children dreaming of the olden days. Once upon a time in the olden days, men stood up and were men, and women were women. And once upon a time in the olden days, man would go out as an individual and he would fight the bears. He would go out, and he didn't pay taxes. No, he just made himself a loaf of bread. He chopped down another tree and built with his own horny hands a cabin. And once upon a time, well, that's what, that's what many of the politicians are doing today. And, and uh, it's just like a kid lying on his daybed, a 15-year-old boy reading the stories of King Arthur, and he's he's lying there on his on his sack, and his mother comes in and says, "What are you, what are you, what are you reading, Charlie?" And he says, "Nothing, nothing." He's all deeply involved, and then suddenly he says, "Ma," she says, "What?" Ma, you know what I'm going to be when I grow up? What? I'm going to be a knight. <laughs> For that minute, he believes it. You, you know the phenomenon, Dick. Now, seriously, he believes it. Can, can you remember when you were a kid and the idea of being a cowboy? 
Well, you know that there are countless grown-up people that I know. I'm, I'm serious. Grown-up, grown-up people, writers. One of them is a famous writer who imagines that underneath his 1964 bearded exterior is the heart and the and the horny life, the hard-bitten creature, the the the, the sinewy body of a cow puncher. He has never been, to my knowledge, west of West Chicago. <laughs> Seriously. And every, oh, the whole, there's a whole crew of writers. And so every Western on TV he watches religiously and lives it. An intellectual. How do you like that? Now, uh, there is a, it is, it is kind of a national dream world. Take a look at, at, at our television. Hour after hour after hour of extensions of that same child's dream. It would be as if this kid, for day after day after day, watched, looked at nothing but pictures of nights. Would you or would you not say he had a hang-up? <laughs> Especially if he was 48? <laughs> well, I'd like to know how many, foot, how many yards of, of TV tape is being cut this very minute. Since I've come on the air showing nothing but guys going, blah, 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 blah. there goes the varmint! Here he goes! We're living in the middle of, uh, of one of the most fascinating uh, daydreams that the world has ever seen. I don't know where it's going to end. I have, uh, I have no idea. And what, what, what intrigues me is that the younger the person is, in most cases, the more he's infected by it, the more he's involved in it. And I'm not talking about just the TV shows. Uh, that, that more and more you will find kids who are 19 and 20 buying 19th century politics and calling their old man old-fashioned. Intriguing thing to say happen, and and, and the, the 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 young kid, for example, who's sitting around playing his guitar, is a liberal in the Charles Dickens sense. He is still fighting the battle of the sharecropper. <laughs> He's still fighting the battle of the 1890s, and, and his his concern uh, when you talk about liberal, his concern for things that are really happening in this country is not only not minimal; it is non-existent. You couldn't get him to sing one song about the millions of guys that are out of work, for example, because of automation. Hey, what do you mean, automation? He doesn't even recognize its existence. He keeps thinking, Gone are the days from the cotton fields away. Oh, I was the man. <laughs> so so you, 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 get into the, you get into the time. Yeah, there we go. By George, you can't beat it. Speaking of the time... We have just wasted another 45 minutes of the 20th century. Or is it the 19th century to you, Charlie? Or maybe there are a few of you who are still deep in the 16th century. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Something old, something new. That's Joe Franklin's Memory Lane every weekday afternoon at 12.30 on Channel 9. You'll meet some of the best-loved personalities in show business. Many bright new faces as well. Enjoy a full hour with Joe Franklin, his old-time movies, nostalgic music, famous guests on Memory Lane, weekday afternoons at 12.15 on WOR-TV, Channel 9. Coming up now, Long John Neville at midnight, WOR-AM and FM, New York.